we know that the Bible teaches that anyone who rejects the Lord Jesus, no matter how moral, no matter how religious they are, they will be lost forever. The Bible teaches that anyone who rejects the Lord Jesus, no matter how moral they are, no matter how religious they are, no matter how devoted they are, they will be lost forever in hell. Now this obviously includes atheists and agnostics and false cults and religions, world religions like Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or all the anti-Christ religions that reject the deity of Christ, that reject the work of Christ on Calvary, the atonement. But something different, Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, we get to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, Jesus is saying something different than that. He's really not talking about non-Christian religions. He's talking about people who say they're Christians, who name the name of Christ, who will not be in heaven. And so he ends with this sobering, shocking, it's not an overstatement to say, horrifying words. He says there will be many who consider themselves followers of Jesus Christ who will not go to heaven. According to the teaching of Jesus, there will be many religious people who claim to be Christians who are in hell. People who say they're Christians, they name the name of Christ and do works, even even supernatural works in Jesus' name, but who don't do the will of God will not go to heaven. This is what Jesus will say in our text today. People who name the name of Christ and don't and do works in his name, but practice lawlessness, according to the Lord Jesus himself, they will not go to heaven. This is the text today. It's, the, it's probably one of the most sobering texts in all of the Bible. And so let's give attention, uh, let's show our allegiance to the Lord Jesus and give attention to his word by thoughtfully reading this together. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7 and verses 21 through 23. And to show special honor to the Lord, let's stand as we read his word. Get the context, I'm going to begin in verse 13 and read through verse 29. Our text is verses 21 through 23. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and it beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your word, the rock that it is for our souls. We would not think of straying away from it and trying to tie our lives or build our lives on some philosophy of man. Thank you, Lord, for the church of the living God formed by the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people who are your children. And I pray that you would help us even now to be, Lord, I pray the effect of teaching of this would that there would be people who think they're Christians now that are not, that would see that they're not, that they would be saved, that there would be Christians that are gathered here, that there, I know there are many who are true Christians under the sound of my voice right now, 
And that as we preach today, their hearts would be deepened in the conviction that there is only one way and that there are many who think they're Christians because they are in Christian churches or they're religious who are lost. Help us to, with great mercy and great grace and, and, uh, and, and with precision and with conviction, be able to minister to these who have a false hope of conversion. Lord, I know that these may involve people that are here under the sound of my voice that we love very much who may themselves be deluded, just they think they're Christians, but they're not. Wherever that is true, I pray that you would expose that and show us in our hearts. Help us to this end, I pray, that you would be honored in this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. All week long, this my heart's been very heavy about this. Who sits under the sound of my, vi- my voice, maybe even regularly frequents this church, maybe even holds an office or a place of service, but they will not have a place in heaven. Who is it that's hearing my voice today, gathered for worship with the people of God? And in the judgment day, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You were lawless. In the passage in Hebrews, there's a, there's a passage very sobering to a pastor it talks about how a pastor is, pastors and leaders are to deliver truth and that when they deliver that truth and it's obvious that it's the word of God they delivered, not their extra biblical rants or opinions, but that they have accurately taught the word of God. The Bible says, obey that. It says to the people, obey that. And then it says something there. Matter of fact, I'll turn there because it's kind of uh, a beautiful promise and yet very heavy matter. Obey that those who have the rule over you. In other words, those who are speaking the truth of the word of God to you. They watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For That would be unprofitable for you. My heart's been really heavy this week as I've studied this passage and tried to let my heart be submitted to the word of God as I just wondered how many people would, would maybe consider themselves members or regular attenders of this church, or maybe they would have an affinity to Jesus, they would use his name, and I wouldn't be able to judge who they are, but in the day of judgment, they would go before Jesus, and he would say to them, I never knew you. And a pastor, the pastors then are supposed to, to be aware of the flock. They obviously have helpers and deacons and leaders and teachers and others, but we should know the state of the flock. And to be frank, sometimes when I, as a pastor, watch over the flock, I do it with joy. I hear things that just bring great joy to me. Uh, We do that as pastors. We pray for the congregation, and, and there are just times that we hear the things that God has inspired in people and, and as the Bible says there in Hebrews, we, we, we are able to give an account with joy to the Lord. And there are other times, and, and it's true every week, and it's been especially true this week, that if I'm not the judge, we're going to see in a moment who the judge is. But to watch over the souls of people, you give an account with grief as a pastor. You say, I just really don't know. I have grief. You can only have grief if you have love. You don't grieve over people you don't love. You have to care. You have to, want, you have to care about them. You have to love them. You have to desire the best for them. And then when they are going in a bad way, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Nobody can grieve you like those ones you love so much when they're not walking in the way they ought to walk. Then you have this continual grief. The Spirit says in the book of Hebrews to you, in the church, make it easy on your pastors so they can give an account with joy about you. Make it clear so that the day comes for your funeral. There are no questions. There are no, there's no fearful trembling. There's just a, a solid account that's given. We saw that this person not only professed to know Jesus, but this person had the righteousness of Christ growing in their life that everybody who knew them could see. Those are the people that we can give an account for them with joy and not with grief. A young lady came here to our church a number of times. 
She spent time with our family. And uh, she had Christian family members who, who prayed for her much. And when she visited this church, those Christian family members were thrilled about that. She had a Christian friend who witnessed to her a lot. She listened. She wasn't yet 20 years old. And she was very open to talking about Christian things. But the world and all that goes with the world had hooks deep into her soul. Eventually she was drawn away from the people of God and from the church and from the things of God, from her Christian friends and from her Christian family. And this week she died. She used to sit right here with us not very long ago. Sometimes she ate with our family, and now she will stand before God. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, a judgment. The scriptures say there's a judgment that's coming. In this passage, it's clear there are three sections here. As Jesus closes his message, over and over he's saying in different ways, in poetic ways, there is going to be a real judgment where you stand before God. And so this day of judgment is coming. So the scriptures say, verse 22, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice verse 22. Many will say to me, in that day, there there will be a day of judgment coming. Repeatedly in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he refers to the judgment of God to come. Jesus wants his people to think continually about the fact of judgment to come. Now, the bodies of unbelievers of all ages will be resurrected. The scriptures say in a a judgment called the great white throne judgment. The throne of God is mentioned over 50 times in the book of Revelation alone. And there will be this great white throne judgment. There will be a judgment for everyone one day. In that day, Jesus referring in a general way here to judgment. The scripture refers to different resurrections and different judgments. It's not our intent to teach about all of them today. We've done that in the past. We'll do it again. But there is a resurrection unto life and a resurrection unto death. When unbelievers die, they go immediately into a place of torment. And they'll be resurrected and stand before God. And when believers die, they go immediately into paradise in the presence of Christ. This is an inadequate way to, dis- to, to, to describe it, but a simple way to describe it would be there's a... There's a, there's a incomplete temporary heaven and a complete and full heaven and an incomplete temporary hell and a full and complete hell. That's a simplistic way to describe this. And in between judgment. So the scriptures just say that people are going to stand before God and be judged as to whether or not they're, they're uh, truly uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That whether they go to heaven or hell will depend then on the outcome of this judgment, although the scriptures say at the great white throne, all those that go to the great white throne will will be lost forever. So the day of judgment for unbelievers will be called this great white throne. There will be those who die in the faith that are believers. They go immediately in the presence of the Lord. The beam of judgment, the Bible talks about that judgment, is a different kind of judgment. We believe that judgment is a judgment kind of like the the, uh, assembly at school, the rewards assembly a little bit. You, you, you will get rewards for things you've done, and there'll be loss of rewards, and there'll be grief from loss from those rewards, and delight from the rewards that you gain, but your soul isn't in jeopardy there. For Jesus Christ died for the sins of believers. He's taken that judgment upon himself. Believers won't be at the great white throne judgment, but they will have the Bema judgment, but unbelievers will be at the great white throne judgment. And we'll talk more about that some other day, but the point here is that Jesus is pointing toward there will be a judgment. There will be a day of judgment. I want you to notice, interest, it's interesting to me, too, if you notice the passage there, there's a bit of timing in, in the passage there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and uh, there is the thousand-year reign of Christ the Bible talks about. That's the kingdom there's also a reference in the Bible to kingdom, which kind of involves all the eternal state. And, and this is the shorthand that often Jesus uses when he's speaking about the kingdom, which could be the thousand-year reign of Christ, or the eternal state. It wouldn't be inappropriate for us to just talk about heaven and hell. 
in simple terms. Who goes to heaven? Who goes to hell? Here's the point. And I have like four points in the message if it helps to arrange your thinking. There is a day of judgment coming for believers and unbelievers alike. And second point is Jesus is the judge. I notice something in the passage that would be really easy to overlook, but it's a major thing in the passage. One of the ways you can tell emphasis is where you, there's a, the, what we call the law of end stress. You get to the end, and there's something that's stressed there at the end. What's the last thing that's said after Jesus closes the message? Matthew includes this. He, people were astonished at his teaching because of his authority, because he spoke like he was the final authority. Rabbis didn't speak as the final authority. They always referenced someone else. It would be inappropriate. It would be inappropriate if... I, can you imagine if I came before you? I would not last two weeks if I came before you and I began to speak as a final authority. Good men would assemble and call me to account for that. Right? Because that's not what we've done. 77 years at Evangel, who's the final authority? The Word of God is the final authority. And so we have not our own authority in that sense. Jesus, though, when he spoke, it was a totally different thing. I want you to notice the authority that Jesus had. Seven examples of it here. One, Jesus was the ultimate authority, along with the fact that Jesus continually said, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it's been said, but I say to you. No man could say that. This is one example. Second example, Jesus was uniquely the Son. Jesus, interesting, he says in verse 21, He who does the will of my Father in heaven. And he's uniquely the Son of God. Jesus is the Lord. Kurios, the special term for Lord here in this particular context, is clear that Jesus is claiming a special term of Lordship. So that's the third reason. There's a special term used that indicated his authority and his deity. No, no man could, could call himself Lord in this way without violating the Scripture. Number four, Jesus was the, is the ultimate judge. Notice the passage. He's setting himself up. He's declaring himself to be the ultimate judge. I will declare to them, I never knew you. He's, the, he's obviously... In other words, wouldn't it be easy to study this passage and to kind of overlook the major thing here is that Jesus is boldly and candidly declaring himself to be the authority, the judge, the ultimate judge of the universe. I understand if you reject the Bible, and I hope nobody here does, and you say, I don't believe the Bible is true, and I don't believe Jesus is God, that may be consistent. It's wrong, but it may be consistent. But there are cults and isms in in liberal Christians not, not political liberal, we're talking here about theological liberalism, classical liberalism, who will say, I believe the Bible, but I don't think Jesus is making the claim to be God. That is just folly. How could you possibly say something like that and read a passage like this? That's foolishness. Jesus is obviously, clearly, obviously claiming his own authority, his own deity. He is the judge. And then number five, the presence of Jesus, he puts himself as his own presence is the greatest reward in heaven. He, the outcome of the judgment is this, you get to be with me, he's saying. And the other piece is, the worst thing about hell is you don't get to be with me. That's what he's saying. You notice this here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done wonders in your name. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. No reference really of the burning fire of hell in this particular little piece. Though we know that that's true. There's eternal conscious torment in hell. But Jesus is saying, you will have to depart from me, which is both positive. You'll have to go away from me and negative. You won't get to be with me. All these are statements of authority as if we, if we didn't have verses 28 and 29, which specifically say that he was recognized. His claim of authority was clearly recognized by those who heard him. So you get this? Let's go over those seven things. It's very powerful here. Seven very powerful witnesses to the authority of Jesus. You're going to stand before Jesus. He's the ultimate authority one day. You answer to him. He's the one who speaks truth. Because he's the ultimate authority. He's the, uniquely the son. He is the Lord in a unique way. He is the ultimate judge. The presence of Jesus is the greatest reward of heaven. The absence of Jesus is the greatest horror of hell. And this claim of ultimate authority was clearly recognized by all who saw him. So if you want to point to the message, point number one, 
would be there is a day of judgment coming. And point number two would be Jesus is the one who's going to do the judging. So we want to listen to the voice of Jesus. We want to hear what he has to say because he's the judge. Now, this is the heart of the, of the message. Now, many who consider themselves Christians will not go to heaven, but they will go to hell. This is what Jesus said. Many who think they're saved will discover they're not one day. Four reasons many who think they're saved are not, I want to give today. Why is it that so many people who think they're saved are not saved? And I've thought about this a lot And we've prayed about this, and pastors have talked about this a lot. I'm sure if you're a concerned Christian, you think about it a lot. Why would somebody who's not a Christian think they're a Christian? Now, again, we're not talking about here, you know, Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims who would not see Jesus as God. We're talking here about people who they would consider themselves Christians. Have you ever heard this around the world, the statistics about Christians? It's like, well, if they're all Christians, why isn't the world different than it is? They're not all Christians in the born-again Going to heaven, not going to hell, sense of the word. We have a guy, a guy I know, and, and to my own grief, you know, he graduated from my alma mater. He now has gone into a lifestyle completely antithetical to the Christian faith. His Facebook lists him as a cultural Christian. Well, what's the point of being a cultural Christian? Cultural Christians don't go to heaven. Born again Christians go to heaven. So there's Christian. And then there's that term that people use, Christian, which is a mis, which is blasphemy, a misuse of the, of the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. These people who say, Lord, Lord, are blaspheming, even as they're doing this. To call yourself Christian because you're in some kind of a group that has Christian roots, but you've rejected the atonement of Jesus Christ. You're not Christian then. That's not Christian. So many who consider themselves Christian will go to hell. Now, why would there be so many, though, who think they're Christians and they're not? I, number one, a false basis of assurance, perhaps. Past profession rather than current practice. Now, we're at fault a little bit sometimes in Christian teaching for this. Because when we talk to people about their, are you saved, then we'll say question like this. Tell me about when you got saved. It doesn't sound bad, does it? But it, it leads them in a wrong direction. Because what we're saying is, what we're implying with a question like, tell me about when you got saved. That's a great question to ask and it's fun to talk about. But if that's the main thing we ask people when they're giving evidence of their salvation, if you're encouraging people for the evidence of their salvation to look back to a time in the past when they made some kind of commitment or prayed some kind of prayer or signed a card or somebody told them something, then you're, then you're kind of implying that their assurance of salvation comes from their memory of doing something, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that assurance of salvation comes as a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit within us when we look and we see the congruence of the Bible in our life, our current life. In other words, the Bible says this, and my life is going in that direction, and the Spirit shows me that, and then I have confidence that I'm saved. I have the assurance of my salvation, not because my mother told me I was saved, not because I signed a card or that I was a member of an organization, but because when you look at my current life, it looks Christian. That's where the assurance of salvation comes from. If your life doesn't look Christian, it's likely you're not saved. There may be some other reasons for that, for a period of time. We'll get into that. But the one reason is false basis of assurance. Please don't teach your children or other people to just look back at a past commitment for the assurance of their salvation. Have them look at their current life. Just ask questions about their current life. You can take the Sermon on the Mount and you can look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, is this, direction, is this the direction that my life is heading? Not Do I have all these things in absolute perfection in my life? Because we believe in what we call progressive sanctification, growing in the Lord. But there's, that should be the trajectory of your life. That should be what characterizes your life. And that's what you should look to for assurance. Look to the Spirit for assurance, not to any person, but to the Spirit of God, using the Word of God and an examination of your life. Now, the proof of that is in 1 John. Because the purpose of 1 John is that you would know that you have eternal life or that you would have assurance. And what does 1 John, what does that little epistle do? Over and over again, it says, look for this evidence. Look for love. 
and look for a growing victory over sin in your life. Love for the brethren. Love for the Word of God in your life. There are evidences that you're to look for. If you have doubt about this, and I hope some of you do today, if you didn't ever before, you should go to the Word of God, 1 John, and begin to read the Word of God, and you may find, I just don't see myself in this. Then you can count on it. You're not saved. But if you look at 1 John and you say, I see progression in these things. I have a hunger for these things. These things are growing, true in my life and growing in my life. Then the Spirit will give you confidence or assurance that you're saved. Now, you don't want to go and face the Lord. And, and, but many people there are, are not saved who think they're saved because they have a false basis of their assurance. And they've been taught this, and I think it's a mistake. I'm confident it's a mistake. One of the things that we want to do with children and as we catechize or teach or train little children is a, a strong emphasis on the guilt and their sin and their conscience. And sometimes we don't want to do that because it, it seems manipulative. You know, we don't want to manipulate a child with a threat of hell or, 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 or take advantage of the fact that they feel guilty. Well, we would be doing that if we weren't going to show them the way to God and the grace and the mercy of God. But we are going to show them that, aren't we? So what we're telling them is that feeling of guilt that you have is real. And, of course, it is real. And that sense of judgment that hangs over you is real because it is real. But you're not alone there. Like, let them understand that desperate circumstance, the situation they're in. They then long for the gospel to be true when they hear it. And that will happen with children and young people and adults alike. So one of the reasons that people that aren't really saved sometimes think they're saved is because of a false base of assurance. Can I give you a quick example? Somebody comes forward saying an altar call. And they say... Okay, I'm, you're, they're weeping, they forward in the altar call, and let's say they're maybe a young person, and they're crying, and they're at the altar, and you're a worker, so you come to help them. And you want to find out right away, what are they coming for? Why are they coming? What do we need to do? And so we say, maybe you say to them, are you a Christian? Have you ever uh, asked Jesus in your heart as your Savior? And they say, yes, I have. So you kind of check, they're saved. Now go to the next thing. And you say, well, they just need rededication. This happens thousands of times. When people perhaps are lost and they're under a burden because there's no evidence of conversion in their life, there's no righteousness growing in their life, and they're responding. And so you say to them, have you ever said these words? Or has your, I don't want to be facetious here, but this is so common that I want to use this. Your, your, your salvation and doesn't depend on what your mother told you. You did. I've actually heard people saying, I don't really remember, but my mother told me I said this, or my mother said I prayed that. That's not anywhere in the Bible about where you look for assurance of your salvation. As much as we love our mothers and thank God that they, from our childhood, are trying to nudge us Godward, you need to know that Jesus is real and have in your own heart and your own life and your own soul affections for God that manifest themselves in the flower of holiness in your life. And if that is not true, don't consider yourself saved no matter what somebody told you. Consider yourself headed for the judgment of God. You drive home today, somebody goes left of sin, and you go out into eternity and you are lost. You say, well, that you're, you're trying to manipulate. No, people have sat in this room under the sound of the gospel and they are now probably in hell. They were within arm's reach of us. How horrible would it be if these were people that consider themselves members or workers or Christians and they listed themselves as Christians but they were lost because they had a false basis of assurance. There is such a thing as assurance of eternal life and one can have assurance of eternal life but let's make sure that it is a true basis of assurance. Another reason why some people are think they're saved and they're not is because of a failure to examine themselves. First, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says it like this. Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. He's talking in an epistle to a group that's in a church, and he's saying, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. This is what we ought to do continuously, examining ourselves. Is there a self-examination in your own life? Is that a part of... Do you, I'm, you, know what, you know what I see a lot of? I see a lot of people examining other people. And I, I hear a lot about people examining other people. And sometimes they're right. They're accurate. They notice things. And can I say this with love and sincere, great-hearted love? 
as a pastor, could I just suggest maybe a fast on examining other people for a while? And just you examine yourself. You don't have all the facts on other people. There are a lot of other things going on you may not know. You should care about them. You should be discerning. There are people that you're responsible for, that there's appropriate examination that should happen. I know that. But is it not possible that we're too eager to examine somebody else and pronounce them guilty rather than just dealing with the hard, cold realities of our own, you know, disfigured likeness of Jesus in our life? So as a Christian body, as a church, wouldn't it be a lot better if we were just a body of people who walked in great humility and just constantly said, Jesus, show me what in my life is distorting the beauty of your image in my life. What pride, what self-righteousness, what pseudopiety, what sin, what, what, what in my life isn't pleasing to you? You say, but pastor, I want to influence those other people. Well, then give them a good example to live up to. Is so much more powerful than you going all the time and, and trying to, you know, get the, get the, you know, speck out of their eye while you have a plank in your eye. This is what Jesus said. Failure in self-examination. Let's examine ourselves as we approach the Lord's table and other times as we, every day as we read the word and we seek a word from God in the word, let the word expose what's not right in our own lives and then humbly go before the Lord. Examine yourself. Sometimes people think they're saved and they're not because they just have not regularly examined themselves. Third, sometimes people use religious activity as a substitute for repentance and conversion. You say to them, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm busy serving God. I'm involved in this and that and the other thing. But have you repented of your sin and are you converted? Is, in other words, the repentance is, the, is, is a miraculous change of mind that completely reorients your soul and there's always going to be Mind, will, emotions, volition, change in a person who's really repented. So in other words, your life changed. How did your life change when you got saved? If your life didn't change, when you said you got saved, you maybe didn't get saved. So examine yourself there. And so what happens a lot of times is because of the emptiness we feel, because we're maybe not converted or not right with the Lord, we get busy in work. Well, wait, there's always a pastor standing by going, hey, sign up for this, or a Christian worker that says, hey, sign up for that. That's all good. We should do that. But if we plug into Christian service and we get really busy doing Christian service, then what's going to happen? Imagine if you were so powerfully effective in Christian service that you could, without blinking an eye, say to somebody, why, you know that I've cast out demons in Jesus' name, and I've prophesied in Jesus' name, and I've even been involved in supernatural works in Jesus' name. It's like, that would like quiet the enemy, wouldn't it? They were just like, oh, well, if you've done all of that. Jesus is, Jesus is not impressed with that. He says, I never knew you. So if a person were to come before God and Jesus and say, in your name, I cast out demons. You know, Judas would have participated in a team doing this, right? Uh, Casting out demons, prophesying and doing many wondrous works. I was there. I was on that team. I was among those people. In Exodus, there were these miraculous signs, you know, that, that Moses would do and then they would try to do. Sometimes they could, sometimes they couldn't, but sometimes they did miraculous things. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't, if you were the devil, wouldn't you try to confuse people by sometimes allowing things to happen supernaturally that you could, that you could do, that you could manipulate in order to throw people off from what's true? And this could be like near-death experiences, or this could be false signs and wonders. And does not the Bible say in the end time there will be false signs and wonders and false Christ? So don't say, hey, look at my record of Christian service. It's very impressive without examining your life. By all means, serve the Lord. But don't look at your service for the Lord or your religious activity as a substitute for repentance and conversion. And there are a lot of people who have like taken a few things out of their life which they can get in big trouble for among Christians. And they've kept the pride, the self-righteousness, and, and all the other kinds of things. They're still there. They're serving with distinction in places of service, but they still got those pockets. That would be something you want to go before the Lord and make sure that you have repented and that you are converted. And then there's this fourth thing, and we, I call it the balance theory. And that is that Satan and religion want people to believe that they can cancel their sin with good works over here. You hear this all the time. Whole religious systems are built on this. Yes, you've sinned, but just do these good things. That cancels the bad things. That's not true. In other words, if I murdered a member of your family, I could bring a casserole over every evening. You would not let me off for that murder. 
You would say, it's really nice of you to bring dinner over every evening, but you still need to go to jail and pay for your murder. So when there's murder, there has to be death. It's either yours or Jesus' death. And so we have to get our sin, which is blood guilt before God, under the work of Christ. So his life pays for your sin, and you don't have to pay for your sin. There's no balance theory going on. And this is what they're saying. Have we not done these things? Doesn't that compensate for that? Jesus says, no, I never did know you. So is your life characterized by growing righteousness? Do you know God? And more importantly, does God know you? Imagine he says, I never did know you. Verse 23. The know means a special relationship of intimacy with God. Obviously, God knows everyone and he knows everything in that sense. This know is a special relationship of intimacy. Know as a Christian, in other words. Recognized as a part of the family of God. Not that he was not aware of their existence, but that he had never acknowledged their claim to be saved. Notice that they weren't saved at one time and then lost and then saved again. The Bible doesn't talk about that. He said, I never knew you. There never was a time you were saved. Because if there ever is a time that you're genuinely saved, you'll always be saved, and there will be the fruit of righteousness that flowers in your life. But if there's no fruit of righteousness flowering in your life, even in little buds, don't consider yourself saved. Consider yourself lost. Get that straightened out with the Lord. Go back and seek God. Don't come to the judgment and hear these words. Salvation is not based on what you claim to believe or what you claim to have done. Salvation is based on knowing Jesus and a verified by a life of holiness. And if I say you know, if you say you know Jesus and you're not doing what he said, you are deceiving yourself. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And if you name the name of Christ, he says, Depart from iniquity. So a person who's truly converted, truly Christian, genuinely saved, he is characterized by righteousness. And this is what Jesus is saying. Three times, notice, he says it a bunch of times in the Sermon on the Mount, but three times I want to emphasize here. Verse 21, he does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, you don't want to get the impression that what Jesus is teaching here is the way to salvation is to try in your own effort to do the will of the Father in heaven. Jesus is just laying the law on people and exposing the impossibility of being saved by works. And we know this by reconciling all the texts of Scripture, that salvation is by grace through faith alone with the evidence of righteousness in the life. Does that make sense to you? So we're not saved by trying to conjure up on our own in our own flesh the the right behaviors because we can't do that. That's why Jesus dials it up so hot here. He just like wants to make you completely silent before the law of God. Now you're prepared to hear the gospel when you are silent before the law of God. In verse 23... He says, look at that, verse 21, the phrase is, depart from me. He said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who enters the kingdom of one is, verse 21, he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Notice verse 23, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is consistent in the other parts of this message, that, what, that, that the main point that Jesus is making here is that if you're saved, then you will be characterized by righteousness. If there's no growing righteousness in your life, we don't want to assume that you're saved. You're you're not. Verse 24, again, you know this is true. Some have said, oh, I know what this is. This is just another expression of the gospel. No, it's not. In other words, some have taken this passage and kind of, I believe, just ignoring the context of it. They have said, he who does the will of my Father in heaven is shorthand for he who believes in salvation by grace through faith. But that's not what it's saying there. That's true, but it's not what it's saying there. It's not what Jesus, it's not, not the point that Jesus is making. And we know this clearly when we get into the next section we'll talk about next time we preach on this from verse 24. Because in verse 24 there it says, He who hears these sayings of mine. He's referring to the immediate context of his message. Do you get this? And let me say it in a different way so that you kind of track with this. The Bible teaches salvation by grace through faith alone elsewhere. Here, Jesus is laying a law on people and preparing people to receive the message of salvation by grace through faith alone. And he's saying, if you haven't believed this way, if you believe the right way, these are the things that are in your life. You don't practice lawlessness and you, you don't disobey the will of my Father in heaven. And then in verse 24, you hear these sayings of mine and do them. You don't get saved by hearing the sayings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and trying to do them. You get real lost that way. 
so that you're ready to get saved when the gospel comes to you like the living water. Does that make sense? That's what he's saying here. So what you have then here in the Sermon on the Mount is something wonderful. You have a tool to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And when you get to the end, if you find you're not, you don't just try harder to act like a Christian because that's fruitless. It's empty. It's folly. It'll lead to depression and maybe, God forbid, you despair of life. You, you flee to the cross and you realize how lost you are, how guilty you are, how your sins, which you've been kind of like, kind of glossing over and not making, they're not that big of a deal. I mean, everybody does them. You realize, no, these are capital crimes against God, which cost Jesus his life. So I flee to the cross and say, then if someone must die, Jesus will die for these things, not me. And, that, and so then you have, without holiness, there will be no heaven. Here are the four points of my message. There are only four. Number one, there is a day of judgment coming. Number two, Jesus is the judge. Number three, many who consider themselves Christians will go to hell. Number four, without holiness, there will be no heaven. We talked about this a little bit. Let me just clarify this as we, as we get toward the end. This is the central theme truth of this message. If you are not characterized by righteousness, you are not truly justified by faith. If you are not being sanctified, you will discover that you were not really saved. All those who are really saved are being sanctified. All those who are... Now, if you were the thief on the cross, you didn't have much time to grow in sanctification. You went to heaven. But the thief on the cross in that moment began to be sanctified. You see? Now, how do, what does this look like? Let me read you the list. And you can do this yourself just as you study the Sermon on the Mount. When, he said, when Jesus said in verse 24, these sayings of mine, he gave us a list of things that our lives ought to look like. And this is what makes me afraid as a pastor. Because I know people who I like and who I love and who I care about who would say I'm a Christian. And maybe it says it on their Facebook or something like that. But when I look at their life, I'm fearful that these qualities aren't in their life that ought to be in their lives. And so as a pastor, I'm given an account with grief and not with joy. And that's not good. Genuine humility. Don't think about others. Just think about yourself. Genuine humility. Jesus talked about that. These sayings of mine. Grief over sin. Chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 5. Meekness. Chapter 5, verse 6. Hunger for righteousness. That would be like your awakened church. Notice you're more awake this week. Hey, listen, by the way, I want to say this. If you work hard, third shift, you're doing your best, and you're coming to church anyway, and you, and you fall asleep, and you're trying, hey, I'll do my best for you, and I'm not judging you on that. I love you, okay? So stick with me. But I'm saying, you got a Bible. You love God. You're hungry for the things of God. You're not just like marking time, doing religious jargon. Hunger for righteousness. Mercy, verse 7. Purity of heart, verse 8. Peacemaking, verse 9. You're persecuted. Does anybody react because you witness or because of your life? Verses 10 through 12 of chapter 5. Good works that glorify God, that people actually see good works in your life. Chapter 5, verses 13 and following. Love for the law of God. Chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Genuine righteousness. This is the heart of what Jesus' message was. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even go to heaven. Chapter 5, verse 20. That's his big idea. And he keeps amplifying that in different ways. Do you have genuine righteousness? Verse 5... Um, through 26, sincere love for people. Uh, this would be sincere love for people. Moral purity, chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. A life characterized by growing moral purity. Marital fidelity, Matthew chapter 5, verses 20, 31, 32. You say, I'm a Christian, but your, your marital status is violates the scripture and you haven't repented of that. You haven't asked God's forgiveness and seen it God's way and made that a part of your testimony then we have reason to be fearful for your soul. Get right with the Lord. Say what God says. Quickly get yourself. That, that, would, that would be evidence that the Spirit of God is working in your life and that you're really converted. Simple honesty. Selfless sacrifice. Verses 38 through 42, chapter 5. Love for your enemies. Verses 43 through 48 of chapter 5. Secret giving. Secret prayer. Secret fasting. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Freedom from greed, freedom from worry in chapter 6. Real godly love and salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Chapter 7 and the whole thing that we've been talking about here. Once a very well-known Christian singer, uh, I don't guess I need to name him, it grieves me. He now openly claims to be a practicing homosexual. He left his family to practice homosexuality but he still boldly claims to be a Christian. It's the wave of the future, folks. 
homosexual Christian churches. It's an example. Let's just pick on them. There's all kinds of sin we can talk about, but let's take this as an example. He still claims to be a real follower of Jesus. Recently, he was the grand master in the gay pride parade at a city out west. I saw it on YouTube. Sickened me. He does not do what Jesus said, but he claims to be a follower of Jesus. Yeah, last night I went to a bookstore and I got this adorable little book. It's a very delightful looking little book. The kind of appealing book that I would like to have written. The kind of book that you would just want to, just want to, it just wants to jump into your, your shopping cart. Written by a Baptist minister. Very, very compelling little piece. And so I just, standing there, picked it up and started to fan through it. And what he's doing in the book is in very, very kind of poetic and light terms, he's explaining away Romans 1. And he's basically saying in the book, this Baptist minister is basically saying in the book, it's really okay if you're a practicing homosexual as long as you practice your homosexuality with one person. This is a popular thing to say. But Jesus said no. So now these are people, and I'm not just, let's not, please, let's not just pick on them. I'm just using it as one example. That say they love Jesus, but their lives don't line up, just like ours are a lot that way. We say we love Jesus, but what about that pride? What about that self-righteousness? What about that condemning spirit of other people? What about all those things that are secret sins in our life that aren't right? What about that we don't have a hunger for God? When people that love God and have God living in them should have a hunger for God, and we could go on and on. This guy, he wants to be known as a Christian. I understand. He must have guilt on him. Many of these, perhaps some of you here today, are really the same place. No matter how many Christian songs he writes, no matter how many works he does in Jesus' name, unless he repents, and I hope he does, Jesus will say to him one day, I never did know you. There are what I would call, I'm about done here, but social media Christians. I'm not a down on social media at all. If you know me well, you know I, I, I think it's just tells who you are. It doesn't generally make you who you are, right? It just exposes who you are, right? You, you, you know what I'm saying? In other words, I'm on Facebook, and I, I was speaking to a group of teens a while ago, a large group of teens, and I just said to them, if we're friends on Facebook, I will never, and you, if you don't do Facebook, that's okay. I'm just using this as an example. I said, if we're friends on Facebook, I will never say anything that discredits my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Facebook. And I will never say anything that discourages you on Facebook. It's a commitment I have to you. I use it as a Christian, realizing that every word gets weighed. It's very difficult. You know, now we have it. It's not, it's not something new. It just exposes us faster, doesn't it? So you may pay attention to social media. You'll notice there are many who in the religion slot on the social media sites name the name of Jesus. And then elsewhere, there's profanity, or there's drunkenness, or there's sensuality, or there's dirty talk, or there's a recommending of, of movies or books or people that are just completely antithetical against our Savior, the Lord Jesus. There's uh, nudity, sexual immorality, and many of these. Perhaps some of you here today, you will be shocked to hear Jesus someday say to you, I never knew you. And you will say, but Jesus... I put your name in the religion section on Facebook. Jesus, I listed myself as a Christian. And he will say to you, you did not practice righteousness. You are lawless. I never knew you. I'm not campaigning for you to clean up your media and be a better hypocrite. What I'm saying is, thank you for your candor. And if I'm your pastor and I know something about your heart that grieves me, and, and let's put ourselves under God's great examination so that we can judge ourselves, so that one day the judge we go to is the beam of judgment, where God is giving us and our brothers and sisters in Christ rewards, which we can cast at His feet, because when we see Him, we're going to want to worship Him. And we're not going to want to have anything in our lives that's not pleasing to Him. We're not going to want to have said a single word that discredits Him. We're not to want ever one time to use any media that we have that it would in any way discourage somebody in their walk with the Lord. We're going to want to be people who are pure and holy and right before God. Know that Jesus is our Savior. Know that heaven is our home. Know that eternity is our prize. 
through Christ our Lord. That's what I want for you. That's what the deacons and pastors and leaders and Sunday school teachers of this church want for you. But is that true about you? Many of you, some of you, may be shocked in that day to hear our saviors say to you, I never knew you. And you're going to say, but Awana, but Sunday school, but Teen Bash, but NGO, but, but bus ministry, but I was a pastor. I never knew you. I never knew you. I never knew you. Many of you, some of you may have noticed that I mentioned my text on my Twitter and Facebook uh, this week that I was going to preach on this text. And uh, what I said was something like, I have a very sad, sobering, painful text to preach on Sunday. And most of the people wrote, I agree, it is sad and sobering and painful, except for one young lady. She said, God used that text to show me that I wasn't saved, and I got saved. So that text is a joyful text to me. Her name's Monica Grafe. I think a few of you probably know her. And I just wonder if there are any other young ladies that are here and you've heard us talk about the words of God, and you'd be willing to examine your own heart and turn this text into something happy, because it's not funny, and it's not fun to talk about. I wonder how many young men are here, young men, young or old, and you would say today, I'm no longer going to depend on what somebody else has told me for my salvation, but I'm going to humbly go before God, plead for his salvation, and then have the confidence that comes when holiness starts to show up in my life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Just this, and we'll wait after church to talk with any who would like to talk, and Lois and I will come to the front here, but I'd like to just ask you, who, who is it that is here that would, would have heard what I said today, and you know you're in need of prayer, and you'd like us to pray for you? Would you raise your hand? Thank you very much. Now we pray, Lord, for these who have, whose hearts have been tender to you and who've lifted their hands. Lord, in the work of the Holy Spirit, work in their lives. I pray that no one would be, would be pushed farther away from you by what I said today. But, but Lord, they would be drawn to you. And when we go to these funerals, we would be able to stand up and say, I know this young man knew the Lord. This was the evidence in his life. I know this young lady knew the Lord. This was the evidence in her life. So I pray that help those who are disturbed by what you said here. And Lord, uh, bring us back tonight, I pray, as we have, uh, uh, Lord, the Sue's report there and our teaching from Proverbs, that it be a help and blessing to others. Give us, I pray, a good Lord's day that you'd be honored in it in all that we do. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.